was this one moment that I honestly will never forget. The scene was um, near the Capitol and there was a line of uh, police protecting the building and there were protesters on the other side of this fence separating the protesters from the police and we could kind of feel the energy rising a bit in that area so we decided as a street medic group to station ourselves close to that area but not you know right in it and so we found this small nook that was kind of on the street near some office buildings and we decided to kind of set up there for the moment to be able to remove a protester and treat them um, if need be. And so we were in that spot kind of just waiting and then we definitely felt the energy get very high and the protesters as a group just started running. Had no idea what was going on at the time and unfortunately a group a small group of us myself included got kind of stuck in that nook so law enforcement was approaching us we could hear the bangs they were getting closer but we were kind of stuck i didn't have space to run and so i ended up just kind of like crouching down and trying to protect my head and there were a small number of street medic volunteers who had bulletproof vests and so they decided to stay with me and try to protect me because I was the physician and you know my my knowledge was important for the group to have and all of these folks were white um, which I think is important to note because it's a very just like vivid way of showing how you can exercise white privilege in this movement and so a couple of them who had the bulletproof vests on essentially just protected me. They leaned over me and protected my body with their body. The story you just heard took place this summer at the height of the anti-racism protests in the U.S. Dr. Kara Tolles filled a backpack with medical supplies, taped a cross to her clothes, and joined the protests as a street medic. In this episode, we're talking about where protests, public safety, and emergency medicine intersect. Injuries from crowd control methods. This is E-Impulse with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magana. Less lethal crowd control. As frontline physicians, we see all kinds of injuries, including those inflicted by other humans. This summer, as protests erupted across the U.S., we saw a fair number of patients with injuries sustained from so-called non-lethal crowd control. Non-lethal or less lethal is not harm-free. As a reminder, the views expressed here do not necessarily represent those of UC Davis Health or the University of California. Our guests today are speaking as physicians and citizens of our community. It was certainly an energy-charged summer, Sarah, and so I interviewed Dr. James Chenoweth, an emergency medicine physician, toxicologist, and colleague of ours at UC Davis. He wrote a piece in This Week in Toxicology blog that caught my attention about the so-called non-lethal crowd control measures that are making it into the news and impacting our patients. (music) 
James, thanks for taking time to talk to us about this very relevant topic. Let's start off. What is non-lethal crowd control? So the the phrase non-lethal isn't even something that's used by law enforcement. It's actually primarily something you see in the media. What it's called is less lethal, which really gives you an idea of what it really is. And it's being used on large crowds of people. So you can imagine a lot of these situations that I've watched from afar on the news and what's going on in Portland right now, you see these, quote, less lethal forms of crowd control being used on people just standing there. And you just don't think most people realize the potential harms that all these agents can cause. Is less lethal the term that law enforcement use? Is that the official term? Yeah, the the official term is less lethal. If you were going to come up with a term, what would it be for this process? I think less lethal is a reasonable term because you're comparing it to bullets. Uh, so, so all these agents are definitely less lethal than a bullet would be. But the reality is that when, when we see them used primarily these days, they're breaking up crowds of peaceful people. And so, you know, I'd prefer that they're not used at all, that they just all go away. And we had quite a stretch of protest here in Sacramento this summer. What kind of injuries did you see as a clinician? I wasn't working any of the shifts in the emergency department those days, but conversations with Dr. Colby, which actually led to me looking a little bit more in depth into these agents. He saw some protesters that were shot in the face with uh, what were called rubber bullets, caused major injuries to the face, uh, fractures of the jaw requiring surgery. Um, We saw other people with significant injuries requiring admission to the trauma service. And then, of course, other people saw exposures to the tear gas and pepper spray requiring decontamination. Dr. Tolls was on the ground there helping care for people and listening to her describe some of the injuries that she saw. It's kind of horrific. Let's go through some of those common, less lethal forms of crowd control that can affect our patients. Let's start with pepper spray. I feel like that one's super common if you work in the emergency department. Even on the PED side, you've probably seen somebody affected by pepper spray. Yeah, pepper spray is really common. It's made of something called oleoresin capsaicin, which is capsaicin from a pepper plant. And it's just meant to burn and be a a chemical irritant, primarily of the mucous membrane. So just like you can imagine if you got a really hot pepper in your eyes or in your nose, uh, on any mucous membranes, it really burns and it's meant to be just an irritant and get people to move away from the exposure. It was originally developed for law enforcement, but it's since become very popular for like self-protection. You know, a lot of people own pepper spray. Um, A little side chemical that is related to that originally was mace. So we hear the name brand mace all the time. The original compound was actually something called CN, which is more closely related to tear gas than to actual pepper spray. That's since been removed from most of the mace products. There's still some that have it, but most mace these days is just the exact same as any other pepper spray. So pepper spray is an irritant. It mostly affects your mucosal membranes. What are the treatment options for this? What do we do when we have a patient that comes in that's been sprayed with pepper spray? The number one thing that you want to do is you want to irrigate. So in the toxicology world, we like to say the solution to pollution is dilution. So (laughs) you just copious amounts of irrigation should be good to get rid of 
most of these compounds. In rare cases, direct contact with the eye, particularly of some of the higher concentration products, can cause corneal injuries. So once you're done irrigating, you want to make sure that you're doing like a, a fluorescein exam or something to make sure that there's no actual corneal injury as a result of the exposure. But after that, once they're feeling better, you're all good. Do you have to check the pH of the eye or anything like that? Not for these. These don't tend to be uh, caustic agents. So they're just irritants. They act on pain receptors in the eye, that the same ones that sense heat, which is why these all feel hot when you get exposure to a mucous membrane. And so once you've diluted that out, then people do really well. So what can we tell our patients to expect over the next however many hours? The number one thing that they'll expect is that they may get a little bit of decreased sensation. And that decreased sensation can last for up to a week after one of these exposures. So if I were to have someone come into the emergency department after I got their eye really irrigated and I examined it well, make sure there's no injury, I would give them something to tape their eyes shut at night so they don't end up getting drying out of their cornea and injury as a result of that. Yeah, that's interesting. All right, so let's talk about tear gas now. How common is tear gas? These days, incredibly common. We've seen it used all the time. It seems to be the preferred method of crowd dispersal for a lot of police departments. And even if you look at the ways that their regulations say it's supposed to be used, it seems to have been misused in the current situation. Most of the use of force guidelines for things like tear gas require some form of violence before they're using that on crowds because there's multiple risks associated with the gas itself. And then you can imagine the stampeding effects of shooting something like that into a crowded area where you risk injury of trampling. So some of the side effects of tear gas is trauma. (laughs) Yeah. And a lot of times these are launched from a launcher that looks kind of like a grenade launcher. And we've seen videos of this being shot at people, which is absolutely against the guidelines. This is kind of the shape and probably about half the size of a hairspray can. So you can imagine a metal object like that being fired out of a launcher directly at someone's head, the amount of damage that something like that could cause. Yeah, absolutely. Different kinds of trauma there. What is tear gas exactly? So most of the tear gas these days is CS gas, which acts on very similar receptors to pepper spray. It's used primarily by police and other domestic organizations like the FBI or other domestic police organizations. It's actually technically illegal to use in war as part of the Chemical Weapons Convention. And it's not necessarily because the gas itself is that much more dangerous than other forms of warfare. But if you can imagine being on a battlefield and seeing some form of gas being deployed towards you, you have no concept of what it might be. And it may be one of these more dangerous ones, and it could lead to retaliation with more serious gases. And that's really the reason why tear gases and all all forms of irritant gases were included, not necessarily because they're as dangerous as other forms of chemical weapons, but because you just can't tell the difference. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So what are some of the side effects besides trauma of tear gas? <laughs> so uh, the number one is going to be uh, irritation of the mucous membranes. Once again, you can actually even get burning of the skin. So an interesting thing about CS is that it's a solid 
And so the only ways that it can be dispersed is sometimes it's pulverized and then put into like a compressed gas cylinder that then is aerosolizing it, or it's a heated incendiary device that's superheating it and spraying out the heated gas as a result. So we see burn injuries from contact both with the canisters and with the gas as it immediately exits the canisters. And then large exposures to the skin can cause irritation of the skin. Sometimes you can see a dermatitis develop. And then if people inhale large amounts, it can cause respiratory injury like pneumonitis. And that's typically large-scale exposures in enclosed spaces are the ones that lead to serious injury and even death as a result of respiratory injury. So how do we treat somebody who's presenting with uh, tear gas injuries? So these are uh, a little bit simpler. Most of the time, you can just remove the person from the area of the exposure and the symptoms will go away in 10 to 15 minutes. It is heavier than air. So you want to get to a space at a higher elevation if possible. You don't want to go downhill because the gas will just go downhill. If someone has some form of respiratory distress, then it's likely to be inflammatory in nature. And so you can use the same things as you would would for asthma or some other form of reactive airways. Things like albuterol could be helpful. And then you just would observe that person to make sure that they don't develop a, a pneumonitis. But for the most part, these tear gas injuries tend to be self-limited somewhere around 10 to 15 minutes. And it's not like a hydrocarbon ingestion or anything like that where you have to watch them for six hours or something. No. And... There are certain formulations that do have hydrocarbons. Most of them are in something like propylene glycol, but there are a few formulations where it's been dissolved into a hydrocarbon. And so you would have to potentially worry about that if someone came in in respiratory distress. But there's not really a whole lot of data on those types of exposures and whether there's a a real risk of developing that chemical pneumonitis that we see with hydrocarbons. One thing is the increased risk of of acute respiratory infection after exposure to CS gas. It's been well known in police and military training when they do what is what's called mask confidence training, which is they put you into a container, they fill it with CS gas and you have your gas mask on and you're breathing fine because your gas mask is working and then they make you take it off so that you can trust that your gas mask works. In the seven days after that training, there's a significant increase in upper respiratory infections in all the people that had that exposure. And so the thought of using these gases during a pandemic seems like probably the not right time to be using it and potentially furthering spread of upper respiratory infections that wouldn't have happened otherwise if they hadn't been using things like tear gas. What about rubber bullets or beanbag injuries? I feel like we've heard a lot about these this summer. You know, beanbags, rubber, that sounds innocent enough, right? (laughs) What are they exactly? What are we talking about here? So this precise question was the question that Dr. Colby asked me after his night shift. He sent me a text and he's like, what on earth are rubber bullets because I've seen horrific injuries as a result of them. And the simplest form of rubber bullet is literally a bullet wrapped in rubber. So it's a metallic core with rubber around the outside. And in addition to the, the rubber outside, the thing that makes it less lethal is the fact that it has a lower velocity charge. So it's being fired from a gun. It still has gunpowder, but the amount of gunpowder and the speed at which it exits the firearm is lower which means that it has less kinetic energy and 
as a result, should have less of a damaging force. But these rubber bullets and beanbag rounds, they're all kind of included in this larger category of what are called kinetic impact rounds. And that's a a nice name compared to the old name, which was baton rounds that were originally developed and used in Hong Kong by the British government to suppress uprisings. And they were literally bamboo batons that were fired out of firearms and, and other things. And then they slowly progressed to be used in the form of rubber bullets in Northern Ireland during the Troubles. And then the U.S. police have started using various forms of these, including regular rubber bullets. But more commonly, I think we've seen recently these plastic devices with a foam tip that are fired out of something that looks more like a shotgun. And they're just meant to impact, cause pain, but not cause permanent injury. And if they're used as properly designed, the original rubber bullets were meant to be fired into the ground in front of protest groups and then bounce into the legs and lower body of the protesters to cause pain but not serious injury. The current regulations and and most of the use of force and particularly like the Sacramento Police Department says that unless you're facing imminent threat, you're not supposed to fire it directly above at the head or the neck of a person. These are a lot more dangerous than the other forms of less lethal crowd control. And we've known that they're potentially lethal from essentially day one when they were used by the British military in Northern Ireland. So what kind of injuries uh, do we see with rubber bullets? You effectively see all the injuries that a regular bullet can cause. You can see penetrating injuries to the head. Um, That's usually the cause of death. In one study, 3% of the injuries resulted in fatality, and most of those were injuries to the head and neck. You can see broken bones. You can see penetrating injuries to the abdomen and chest. And then one of the things that we've really noticed with these foam-capped plastic rounds are we've seen a lot of globe injuries. So the last report that I saw that was keeping a tally on it said that there were at least, I believe it was eight or nine people that had been permanently blinded in one eye by these rubber bullets. The beanbag rounds are just metal shot inside effectively like a canvas or whatever material cover around it. So it's still a large amount of force being delivered. And the the point of the shape of it is to spread it out over a wider area to decrease the likelihood of penetrating injury. They're not what we think of when we think of beanbags. (laughs) All right. Any other tips for people taking care of our patients that have been affected by non-lethal crowd control? I think anytime you're dealing with people that have suffered this type of injury, doing everything you can to decrease further trauma to them is going to be incredibly useful in addition to treating their physical injuries, you know, making sure that you're not doing things that would further traumatize them, trying to avoid too many interactions with law enforcement as best as possible, trying to be a little bit more understanding if someone's a little boisterous or loud or potentially verbally aggressive, you know, using all of our techniques for de-escalation before we cause further psychological trauma by calling over a police officer or a security guard. I think that's probably the one of the number one things you can do after you've finished treating the physical injuries. That's a really great summary of how these crowd control methods affect our patients. 
You know, I've seen patients with pepper spray in their eyes, taser barbs stuck in their face, large hematomas from rubber bullets, and other injuries stemming from encounters with law enforcement. These patients were in pain, but they were also scared and confused by what had happened to them. Yeah, you know, Sarah, even in peds, I have seen my teens brought in with some of these same injuries. It just breaks my heart. To learn more about these injuries, I spoke with Dr. Kara Tolles. My name is Dr. Kara Tolles. I am an assistant clinical professor of emergency medicine at UC Davis. I'm also the director of equity and inclusion for our emergency department. And I think it's important also that I identify as a black, queer, cisgender woman. I've moved through the world and our country with a certain set of experiences, just like we all have. And unfortunately, some of those involve me being discriminated against for multiple reasons. And so I actually, like many people of color, do have a history of being discriminated against and harassed by law enforcement. And so that set of experiences definitely informed the work that I did as a street medic. And I also want to say that I consider myself to be an expert in emergency medicine. I'm trained in responding to trauma. But when it comes to doing street medic work, I actually don't consider myself to be an expert in the pre-hospital and street medic world. And there are a lot of people and groups that have been doing this work for a very long time that I think we all have a lot to learn from. So I also want to give a shout out to some of the local street medic groups that are doing really important work throughout all of the uprisings and protests recently. And so one of them is May Day Medics, and they are the street medic team that is associated with the Anti-Police Terror Project here in Sacramento. The other uh, street medic group here that's local in SAC is called Sacramento Street EMS. And that is a group that actually kind of was born during these most recent uprisings here in Sacramento. And they are much bigger and more organized than the very beginning. So you were a street medic during some of the recent protests here in Sacramento. What exactly does that mean? What is a street medic and how do you become a street medic? As far as I know, there's no quote-unquote official training whereby you can get any sort of quote-unquote official certificate to be a street medic. It's an individual really saying, I have something to offer in terms of providing medical care to protesters who are exercising their constitutional right, and I want to be there to support them. As EM docs, we run toward the chaos. And so as an EM-trained physician, I absolutely felt the call to to offer my services to be able to support folks who were exercising their constitutional right in protest of something that I believe very deeply in. So that was the, the reason that I kind of showed up. But we definitely had other folks who I met in the street who didn't have any formal emergency medicine or med- medical training at all. And they still had a lot to offer. There are folks who were support folks who would bring food and different supplies that we needed as medically trained folks. Irrigation supplies, for example, all, all sorts of other necessities for folks who are protesting. When you're out there, how do you identify yourself as a street medic? How do people know how or where to find you? 
I honestly didn't know what I was getting myself into at all. I've definitely been to protests, but I'm not the person who runs directly toward the chaos. I'm kind of chaos adjacent, if you will. And so, so I didn't know what I was getting myself into, but I had a, a group of folks who were going to the protest with me and um, they, I was like, what do I wear? What do I do? And so they gave me some pointers and then I showed up and I didn't show up with any supplies that clearly delineated who I was. And so we were kind of making it up on the fly. We were looking around in the crowd and trying to see if other people were clearly identified as street medics. And so we saw some folks with crosses, like a red cross that made out of duct tape on their shirt or vest or whatever. And I just walked over to him and said, Hey, I'm a doctor. I'm an EM doctor. Y'all look like you kind of know what you're doing. Like, what's up? And she was like, Oh, you're an EM doctor. This is great. Here, take my vest. She literally took her vest off, put it on me. And we found another person with some duct tape and put like a hot pink cross on the back of the neon yellow vest you know so that was the first day needless to say the very next day I was more prepared so what kind of things are you preparing for when you're out there and what do you put in your pack when I first started I kind of had no idea so that first evening was a great learning opportunity I kind of think about it in two different ways you are bringing supplies that you'll need to help you respond to medical emergencies there on the ground But you're also, and this was something very new to me, you're bringing supplies to help you protect yourself. You want to wear clothing that identifies you clearly as a street medic to hopefully try to reduce the chance that you will be targeted (laughs) by law enforcement. You're essentially thinking about what sort of weapons are going to be used against you, possibly. I honestly knew nothing about that because I don't interface with you know, law enforcement that much in my life. Um, so it was a big learning curve in the beginning. So I know now, after this experience, that I needed to protect myself from things like tear gas and flashbang grenades and pepper balls, which are these balls that are shot from non-lethal, less lethal guns that explode pepper spray all over you. So now that I understand what kind of weapons were being used against the protesters and me, it informs the way that you protect yourself. So uh, wearing a helmet would be important. Clothing that clearly identifies you, who you are as a medic. A respirator, if you have access to one. Goggles to protect your eyes. Gloves to, to protect you, you know, if you come across bodily fluids, etc. And then the actual supplies to help you respond. So you're thinking minor trauma, so cuts and scrapes and bruises. You want to have irrigation supplies for irrigation of folks' eyes who get tear gas in their eyes. There are a couple of different irrigation methods. I won't really go into any of the details, but suffice to say you should hopefully be using a sterile, like a cleaner sterile solution when you're putting things in people's eyes. And then bandaging materials, things like that. You're essentially thinking, one, is the scene safe? And sometimes the scene was very unsafe. And then two, 
you're making the decision about whether or not you can treat this person appropriately with the supplies that you have there on site or whether or not they need to get to an emergency department, which transport can be difficult during situations like this because communication can be difficult. So it's, it's definitely a challenge for sure. Tell us about some of the things you saw and what your experience was like being out there. I could talk for a while about what I saw. When I first arrived, I saw peaceful protesters who were exercising their constitutional right in protest against police violence, specifically police violence in Black communities. And so that's what I first saw. And then the second thing that I saw was uh, law enforcement there, and they were outfitted with military-style outfits and weapons, so batons and tear gas, which, by the way, is a chemical weapon that is illegal to use in war, but is being used on the streets toward civilians at the hands of law enforcement. Flashbang grenades, pepper ball projectiles, rubber bullets, essentially law enforcement escalating violence and causing severe physical and psychological trauma to folks who were protesting police violence specifically toward communities of color and black black people to be specific talk to me about some of the injuries that we see with these less lethal weapons anything from bruises uh, abrasions cuts or lacerations up to and including severe trauma, um, physical trauma, I'll say, um, from the use of these, these less lethal weapons at close range. And so some of those more serious injuries were severe facial fractures, so broken bones in your face, skull fractures, bleeding in the brain, eye injuries, people losing their vision, um, things like that. And that's just speaking to the physical trauma. Who knows? And and I'm sure we're all in the process of identifying like what degree of psychological trauma this has all caused. And so I've I've seen and I've been harassed by law enforcement, but the degree of physical trauma that I saw inflicted to more often people of color was really eye-opening for me. And it especially, like, it makes me, it makes me emotional because um, I myself was at risk. Um, I think as an emergency medicine physician, we're always trying to measure this risk benefit. And so um, a thought that was going through my head is, is it safe for me to be out here? And the honest truth is no, it's not, but this is something that I believe so deeply in and affects me very personally that um, I couldn't I couldn't just sit, especially because I have this specialized skill set as an emergency medicine physician, so I know that I could be useful, you know. Thank you for, for being so open with us and vulnerable and sharing your story with us. I think a lot of us don't know exactly what it's like. Some of us have seen those injuries come into the ER, but we don't know what that's like to be on the ground and, you know, and see that almost like a, you know, warfare kind of situation. Yeah. And I, it's interesting that you use that term. And, and I, I can't speak to what it's like to be in a war zone because I've never been in one. But 
there were definite moments, you know, these loud bangs and, you know, not really understanding the the weapons that were being used against you because you're just like like a civilian person, you know, exercising their right to, to protest this injustice. And so you don't really know what you're up against, but it felt it felt very, very scary in the moment. Um, and I don't, I don't think that that's something that I could do often, (laughs) but I felt particularly called in that moment. Being a street medic is a really unique opportunity for physicians and other providers to help those injured on our streets. It makes a lot of sense to me to be there at ground zero where the injured are, But oh my goodness, that sounds intense. Yeah, and it really struck me that both Kara and James mentioned that the physical trauma is what makes the news and what brings these patients into the ED. But I wonder what the long-term psychological trauma is. Right. I wonder, Sarah, how does this change how kids interact with law enforcement long-term? I think about that with my patients in the emergency department. There is a lot to think about, and certainly long-term implications beyond the acute injuries. Pulse check. Pepper spray is a common irritant that affects the mucous membranes. Remember, the solution to pollution is dilution, as in irrigate, irrigate, irrigate. And when you're done, check for those corneal injuries. Tear gas is also an irritant of the mucous membranes. It is pulverized into gas cylinders and heated incendiary devices, so burn injuries can occur as well. Treatment mostly involves getting to fresh air and higher ground because it is a solid. So don't run downhill. Most injuries get better spontaneously. Interestingly, affected patients are at risk for URIs after exposure. Rubber bullets and beanbags are objects fired from guns that have a softer impact than regular bullets. They are meant to cause more blunt trauma than penetrating trauma. While they are less lethal, they are still lethal and can cause significant injuries. If you want to stand up and help those in need as a street medic, make sure you go prepared. Identify yourself, bring protective gear, and bring supplies to treat cutaneous injuries, such as bandages and lots of irrigation material for the pepper spray and tear gas. You know, during the interview with Kara, she said something thought-provoking that I want to leave us all with. That was a very eye-opening experience, and, and it was very, very scary. <laughs> and it led me to understand that, that um, I don't think it's going to be sustainable for me to do exactly that type of work with street medic groups. But I also understand that there are many other ways that folks can contribute whether that's education or supporting groups financially or, you know, providing shelter or food for people in the groups, etc. So yeah, that was a very eye-opening experience. And throughout this whole kind of situation, um, if I, I kind of already knew where I stood in terms of things, but I think this experience really solidified this idea that um, there's really only two options and that is to sit down or stand up. Stand, standing up can look all sorts of ways for all sorts of folks, um, but you're making a bold statement by doing either of those when we've reached this point. 
We would love to hear from you what kind of injuries you treated this summer during the protest. Rate us and share with your friends. Follow us at EM Pulse Podcast. Thank you to our department and our colleagues for opening your arms to our injured patients. And thank you to OM Audio Productions for crowd control in the Magania house. See y'all next time.